thank you for joining us for another episode of God, Law, and Liberty with David Fowler, president of the Family Action Council of Tennessee. Every week, we are putting culture, politics, and law on a collision course with the truth of God's Word. And now, here's David. Welcome to this week's episode of God, Law, and Liberty, and I'm delighted to have you join with me on this July 4th weekend. And I think you will find this week's episode particularly compelling, coming as it does on this July 4th weekend. In fact, in today's episode, we're going to trace a bit of the history of how America got to where it is today in terms of the law and government and politics. And today, you will see how changes in the Christian's understanding of the gospel brought us to the place where our nation is today. In fact, just this week, the United States Supreme Court let stand a decision of a federal district court that held it was unconstitutional for a Virginia public school district to have a policy that bases use of bathrooms on biological sex. Recognizing male and female for the use of bathrooms in a public school was a denial of equal protection. Can you appreciate what that means in terms of any objective versus subjective reality? Remember how we've spoken over the last week or two and, and often on throughout this series on the, the why and how of Christian political engagement that we've talked about how Christianity has become subject-oriented in its view of the Bible and of God and the work of God in time and in history rather than objectively rooted first in who God is and what God's doing. Remember what Dr. Grant said a few weeks ago when we quoted him. He said, whenever you look at anything, including policy, you need to begin with your theology, not your anthropology. And because the church has started with anthropology and the me approach to what is my situation and that going on around me, and now I'm going to go to the Bible to see what it has to say for me, not I'm going to go to the Bible to see what it says about God and then what is the implication of that for me has led to this idea, this belief that our bodies are sort of just accidents. They're irrelevant to who we really subjectively are. Now, what you're going to hear over the next several minutes that's brought about this kind of result is found in a view of the world that begins the gospel in Genesis 3 with the fall instead of a view of the gospel that begins in Genesis 1 and 2. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, let me encourage you, go back to the podcast on March 19th with Dr. Andrew Sandlin and listen to it. And today as we go forward, keep in mind what I've been saying, that one's protology, one's view of first things, necessarily influences one's eschatology or their view or beliefs about last things. Also keep in mind what I've said about dualism and Gnosticism and it being rampant in the church today. And here is how those two things fit together. 
your belief about protology influencing eschatology and the dualism. Here's how they fit together, and you're going to hear this running through what I'm going to share the rest of this episode. That if you start your understanding of reality, and by that I mean the history of the world in Genesis 3 with the fall, then you'll be more inclined to think, more susceptible to thinking that this world is a bad place and salvation is escaping the world. Escaping is your eschatology, not Genesis 1:28, where man was commanded to rule over the fish of the sea and over the earth and to expand God's dominion in a tangible, visible way by turning the rest of Eden and the rest of the wilderness outside of Eden into garden. So, with that as the background to today, I want to pick up with last week's observation by Abraham Kuyper. He's a theologian. He was the Prime Minister of the Netherlands at the start of the 20th century. And he made a comment I quoted last week about Protestantism in light of the ongoing and spreading effects of social democracy that had been born of the French Revolution. It was spreading throughout the continent. And he was at Princeton Seminary in 1898 saying, it is coming across the oceans. You're no longer hermetically sealed off from the rest of the world. Prepare for the godlessness, no God, no master, social democracy of the French Revolution. And here's what he said to those seminary students. Protestantism wanders about in the wilderness without aim or direction, moving hither and thither without making any progress. And I've, I've said it so often to my board and to friends, I'm no longer interested in lots of movement without direction. I think there are lots of organizations out there, and they're doing things all the time. There's lots of movement. And they want you to be a part of their movement. But have you ever stopped to think, well, where are they actually going? What's the eschatology of all of their efforts? What progress do they want to make? Or is it, let's just stop this and let's stop this and let's stop that. But do they see the world in any kind of whole making progress towards something? Or just trying to keep the boat from sinking because we all got to escape because this world is just a bad place. Now, I want to read to you some things today and, and, and then uh, explicate them as I, as I go along that come from a book by Harold J. Berman, B-E-R-M-A-N. I give you the spelling of his name in case you want to look it up, not because I recommend you go buy the book and read it. It's 700 pages. It's quite uh, challenging read, small print, but some of it is really good and it pertains exactly to what we're saying here. Mr. Berman taught at, at Harvard for a number of years. He actually taught law, I think, 60 years, wound up at Emory his last several years. Brilliant thinker on comparative law and the history of the legal tradition. And he touches on exactly what Christianity did, what Christianity lost, and what filled the vacuum that Christianity left that led to where we are today. I think you're going to find this most fascinating. Let me begin at the beginning. As Mary Poppins said, that's a very good place to start, right? And, and he noted here that in terms of the revolutions that brought about 
the Western legal tradition and, and that have now changed and are changing the Western legal tradition, which is basically almost completely gone. He said that the, the, the Hebrews brought to the development of the Western legal tradition a view that didn't exist anywhere else that allowed for the actual development and the progress of the law and the establishment of what we would call the Western legal tradition. It was something that built up, that, that was going someplace. And so here's what he said, the Hebrew people believed, unlike other cultures and other religious beliefs, that, that time is going somewhere. It's not just ever-recurring circles. And so it's continuous, it's irreversible, it's historical. It is leading to an ultimate redemption at the end. So he says, so they believe that, that time has periods in it. It's not cyclical, but it may be interrupted, or it may be accelerated, but it develops. The Old Testament is a story not merely of change, but of development, of growth, of movement toward the messianic age. Very uneven movement, to be sure, with much backsliding, but nevertheless, a movement toward. In other words, there was progress. They were going somewhere. They had an eschatology that was, was moving somewhere in a direction to an ultimate end and not just an endless repetition of cycles. And then he goes on and he says, Christianity, however, added an important element to the Judaic concept of time, that of transformation of the old into the new. You see, it's one thing to say that we're going someplace and there will be a messianic age and we're moving towards that age, but it's quite a different thing to say that in the midst of that movement, something new comes in. And so he said this, in the story of the resurrection, Death was transformed into a new beginning. The times were not only accelerated, but regenerated. See, there's something new there. This introduced a new structure of history in which there was a fundamental transformation of one age into another. And see, what, what Christ says is that, that when you read in the New Testament, it says, that we're in the last days. A new age has come upon us. That Christ will be in heaven until the restoration of all things, as it says in Acts, as it also says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And Berman continues, this transformation, it was believed, could only happen once. The life, death, and resurrection of Christ was thought to be the only major interruption in the course of linear time from the creation of the world until it ends altogether. Now, as you can just see when you think about that sentence, he's writing saying that the Christianity that developed after the death of Christ, going into, I would even say, the latter part of the 20th century, thought that there was only one interruption in the course and flow of history from Genesis 1, and that was the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. There was no rapture that took place, another cataclysmic event between what happened on Golgotha and the resurrection in the garden and the end judgment. You see, that's a relatively new phenomenon within Christianity. Now, he goes on, and here's 
what he says. This is this was fascinating to me. There's a historian, legal historian, named Rosenstock Husey. In his great work uh, on the law, he said that he showed how belief in an end time, the end of the world, has influenced the great revolutions of Western history. And Berman goes on. When Christian eschatology was discarded by the Enlightenment and by liberal theology in the 18th and 19th centuries, a secular eschatology took its place. Now I'm going to come back to that and say, well, what, what do you mean when the Christian eschatology was discarded by the Enlightenment? We have an eschatology now, don't we? Yes, but the eschatology itself changed, and we're going to talk about that. So Rosenstock Hussey goes on to say, no people can live without faith in the ultimate victory of something. So while theology slept, the laity betook itself to other sources of last things. Do you see what this, this scholar is saying in connection with the law and the Western legal tradition is that when the eschatology of Christianity changed from this idea that that times were being regenerated, that we were in the last days, and there were two works going on here. There was, one, the work of the sons of Adam continuing to mess up the garden and God's purposes, but God bringing in a Messiah who, through his descendants, this second Adam, this last man, was undoing that work, the works of the devil, and was reconciling all things back to God. And when that eschatology got lost, which we're going to talk about in just a moment, particularly when it came in that we're all going to be raptured, and then there's going to be some period of time, and then there's going to be a final judgment, he said something else took its place in this world. Because you see, we have to live in this world. And I think that's what Kuiper was saying. We don't know what we're living for in this world. We, we got saved, and now we're just hither they're making no progress because we're just kind of waiting to get raptured out or waiting for the last judgment. We don't know what we're supposed to be doing. We're going to talk about that in just a little bit more in case that sounds harsh, but these are coming from, from, from people who are studying the law. These are not theologians. They're observing changes in history and in Christianity that have undermined the Western legal tradition which would not have allowed abortion, which would not have allowed same-sex marriage, which would not have said it's unconstitutional to designate bathrooms by biological sex. If we want to point a finger at where the responsibility for today's conditions lie, it's not in those outside the church, it's on those in the church, and particularly its leaders and its shepherds. And that's a harsh statement, but it's true. Now let's go on. So he said, this is again Rosenstock Husey, so while theology slept, the laity, the average person, betook itself to other sources of last things, to the eschatology of Karl Marx on the one hand, and of Friedrich Nietzsche on the other. Wow, what a damning statement. Now let's stop and go back and look at this statement about the change in eschatology within the church that Rosenstock Husey was pointing out. Uh, Berman in his book notes that in the late 11th and early 12th centuries, regeneration was for the first time seen as applicable also to the secular society. 
So in other words, up until then, it seemed as if regeneration was a spiritual matter. Again, this dualism of the pagans that the earth and matter is bad and we just need to escape and be the spiritual person. But they began to see that, well, no, wait a minute, that this regeneration is for all things. Remember us referring to that, and Dr. Grant referring to that at restoring the vision that's mentioned in the Bible that we seem to ignore. He said, so the reformers of the Protestant Reformation put themselves at the beginning and the end of a new secular time. They projected backward in the past in order to project forward into the future. They saw themselves at a turning point in history, the beginning of a new age which they thought would be the final age before the last judgment. This was a new interruption within the Christian era. In other words, there was this linear movement continuing forward, but a regeneration had come, a new thing had come, that a new creation had been brought about. We'll talk more about that later, but just read 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and in Galatians at the end, in the last chapter. Whether it's circumcision or not, he says, what matters is new creation. In Colossians, we've been transferred to a new kingdom. See, all of that was was in their belief system that, wait a minute, there's something more here than I've been regenerated to kind of hang around and wait and be a spiritual entity until I can go off into the clouds, into heaven, and be a spiritual being. But that's what got lost. That's what Rosenstock Husey was saying. While that theology went to sleep, another replaced it, Marxism, and the meaningless and the ubermensch of Nietzsche. So for the reformers, this idea of regeneration, this idea that, that God is reconciling all things back to himself, this idea of going back to Genesis chapter 1 instead of starting in Genesis 3, led them to believe that in fact it was necessary for them to begin to reconcile all things back to God in order to fulfill man's ultimate destiny. That became the basis upon which they made a conscientious attack, he says, upon the existing order and the conscientious establishment of a new order. The sacred, God's word, was now to be used as a standard by which to measure the secular order and to challenge the, the emperors and the kings and the lords according to God's law and to begin to renew and restore those things and to bring them back into alignment with God's Word. Now in some ways that's been totally lost by pietism and its focus again on the subjective existential self, me. Not anything to do outside of me. So Berman continues with this observation that begins to bring us in to the modern day. He says, quote, Puritanism in England and America were the last great movements within the institutional church to influence the development of Western law in any fundamental sense. Now that's 
That's where Rosenstock Husey was saying, because we lost this sense of eschatology, of making progress towards something, where, where all things are brought back under the lordship of Jesus Christ, as we reconcile all things back to him and hold all things up to the mirror of his word, well, Marxism and Nietzscheism filled its void. So he says, undoubtedly, prophetic Christianity continued to play an extremely important part in bringing about law reform, for example, in the abolition of slavery, in the protection of labor, and in the promotion of welfare legislation generally. And we, we have that today, the prophetic word of this is terrible, we need to not let boys go in girls' bathrooms or compete against girls in sport, but it's bits and pieces. It's let's fix this, let's fix that, but it's a hither and thither without any progress towards anything in particular. He goes on and says, and on the other side, organized religion continued to support the status quo, whatever it happened to be. But the significant factor in this regard, in the 19th century and even more in the 20th, and see, this is where, where Kuiper is living and writing, was the very gradual reduction of traditional religion to the level of a personal private matter without public influence on legal developments, while all other belief systems, new secular religions, ideologies, and isms were raised to the level of passionate faiths for which people collectively were willing not only to die, but also to live new lives. So again, we see this idea that as our theology retreated, from this belief in Genesis 1 and the protology and eschatology of Genesis 1 to the world is bad and we need to escape Genesis 3, other things rushed in to fill the void. Now this was a fascinating statement in observation by Berman. It was the American and French revolutions that set the stage for the new secular religions. Now, I've always heard the American Revolution was fundamentally different from the French Revolution, and in many ways that's true, and he's not saying that they were founded on the same premises necessarily so much as that they set the stage for new secular religions, and in that sense, they're both the same. And here's how he describes the American Revolution and the French Revolution. They set the stage, he says, quote, for pouring into secular political and social movements the religious psychology as well as many of the religious ideas that had previously been expressed in various forms of Catholicism and Protestantism. So they were pouring into a secular political and social movement ideas from the Protestantism, the Catholicism, the belief in the Bible and the New Order, but void of the religious, theological, objective content. And so he goes on. At first, a kind of religious orthodoxy was preserved by means of a deistic philosophy, which had little of that psychology which is the heart of religious faith. Now, I'm not saying here what you hear from liberals all the time, that all, all of our founding fathers were deists. No, not saying that. Deism is about more than that. Deism is about more than just simply the belief 
that God started the universe and then backed off and is waiting for it to finish its course, deism is a form of a dualism where it separates the spiritual from the natural world. And as science progressed in the belief that all things in the natural world just move according to natural laws irrelevant and without regard to God and the work of the Holy Spirit in, in the world and maintaining the world and directing it to an end, well, gosh, pietism fit right into that, didn't it? See, there's the spiritual order over here, and I'm going to be a very spiritual, pietistic person while the rest of the world runs according to a natural order of things. And that's, that's what happened. That's why Puritanism ceased to have any influence really on the law and, and why those other ideologies sprang into place. And so Berman continues, what was religious about the great revolutionary minds of the late 18th and 19th century? Men like Rousseau, the, the uh, father, you might say, of the French Revolution, or Jefferson, was not their belief in God, but their belief in man individual man, his nature, his reason, his rights. And keep in mind that this is the time period in which Kuiper had been living and this change was taking place and this is what he was seeing then. The political and social philosophies that sprang from the Enlightenment were religious because they ascribed ultimate meaning and sanctity to the individual man. Individualism, rationalism, and nationalism, the triune deity of democracy. And so you can see here well how this retreat from a Genesis 1 and 2 Christianity with its own protology and eschatology into the world is an awful place, we need to be saved and redeemed, and so we're going to concentrate on only the spiritual life of the individual man and escaping here for heaven led us to where we are today. Roland Van Zandt, a historian, wrote in 1859 in his uh, book, The Metaphysical Foundations of American History, wrote, America's French Revolution has awaited the 20th century. You see, Roland Van Zandt saw in 1959 that we were moving towards this godlessness by virtue of this retreat towards pietism. And our day was coming, and it's here. The Supreme Court announced it this week when it said it would let stand a ruling. It says there's no objective reality to male and female. I hope you join me next week as we look at the the drift within the church that led to this subjectivism and pietism and the fact that it really wasn't intentional as much as it was just a failure to pay attention to all that the gospel proclaims. And I'll look forward to having you join me again next week on God, Law, and Liberty. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. God, Law, and Liberty is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. 
For more information, please visit us at www.factennessee.org. That's F-A-C-Tennessee.org. And please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Fact Tennessee.